Uh, tonight, um, I'm going to call an audible, and uh, we're not going to study Colossians tonight. I know, I know. I'm still going to open the Bible. You're going to like it. Um, instead, what I want to do tonight is I just want to take you through um, my favorite song. One of my favorite songs. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 130. Um, this psalm is only eight verses long, and... Um, uh, how do I summarize it? Basically, it is a summary of the gospel. And I think in the middle of the week, um, I need to hear again, and probably you do too, uh, the simplicity that we just sang about, uh, that Jesus is for us and not against us. So let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word, and um, that you mean for us in to see Jesus. So, so we pray very simply that that's what would happen tonight, that you would um, comfort us with the balm of his grace, with his life, death, and resurrection. May we see ourselves in, uh, in union with him, and may we know that in that place, your love for us has been secured so that nothing we can do tomorrow, what we can do the next day, can make you love us any more or any less. You're for us and not against us. Help us to see that once again in your name. Amen. So tonight what I want us to do very simply uh, is look at the psalm is, um, is really made up of two parts. Verses 1 through 4 form one unit. And then verses 5 through 8 of the second unit. And if you'd like to take notes, you can just take those sort of units as your two points. 130. Did I say 139? Oh, okay. I like, I like Psalm 139 too, though. It's a good psalm. Um, no, Psalm 130. Um, so the first part we could really uh, summarize, the first four verses, um, the psalmist talks about where uh, sin leaves us, where sin ends up leaving us. And the next four verses, the psalmist delves into how grace delivers us from that place. So let's look at those now, where sin leaves us first. If you look with me, let me read, actually let me read the text first. That would be good. Song of Ascents, Psalm 130. <clears throat> Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, then who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen, watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So if you notice, the psalm begins in a place. And what is that place? Where does the psalmist begin? At the depths, right? That's the, my translation says the depths. Yours will say something similar. And what are the depths? Well, Psalm 69, 1 through 3, gives us a more vivid description of the depths. And I want you to see as I read these three verses in Psalm 69, if you can just feel the poetry, all right? This is what the psalmist writes. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. If you were to summarize what the depths are, we might say that they are basically rock bottom. 
that the psalmist at this point has sort of come to the end of the line. There's a famous quote by Henry David Thoreau that says that most men live lives of quiet desperation and then they go to the grave with a song still in them. That is not what the psalmist is talking about. The depths are not places of quiet desperation. The depths here are places of urgent despair. My senior year uh, in college, a few guys, a few of my good friends, uh, convinced me to go kayaking with them, whitewater kayaking. I'd never been in a whitewater kayak in my life. And we were going down the, uh, the Nantahala River in North Carolina. And at the end of these rivers, these runs, there's always that one big rapid that people kind of line up on the side to see and you know, laugh at people as they sort of flip over and have to do the, sort of the, you know, the swim through the rapid. And, and so there was that sort of thing awaiting us. And I got in the boat that day, and I did pretty well for my first time. Now, I don't know if you know this either, but when you're in a whitewater kayak, you're actually attached to the boat. You're in something called a skirt. It's a really manly name if you're kayaking. You're in a skirt. So I come to the last rapid of the day, and I sort of figured it out a little bit. But one thing I don't know how to do is to flip back over. Um, which isn't a big deal. I mean, you can, it just means this, that if you're underwater, you have to work to detach yourself from the boat first. Get to the, get to the rapid, and I gave the audience all their way to see. Hit the rapid, and immediately I flipped over, and I started reaching to unbutton my skirt. I hope I never have to say that again, but I was looking, <laughs> trying to unbutton the skirt because I knew I couldn't flip back over. My friends even told me if I'd known how, it didn't matter because the boat was so submerged at that point because the water was pouring down on it so fast that there was no way I could have gotten my hips to flip the boat back over. So there I am, uh, fastened to the boat, and I rip the boat away, and all of a sudden I realize that I'm caught in something called a hydraulic. I don't know if you know what that is, but it just means that the, the river's going to keep you there. I mean, it literally feels like that the river has, or the water has uh, uh, tentacles that's holding your ankles under. And I knew at that point, because I've been rafting before, that what you're supposed to do in a hydraulic is you're supposed to swim down. I'll be honest with you, it's hard to swim down when all you want to do is swim up. And I was so scared at that moment. My life was flashing you know, before my eyes. I don't say that in any sort of casual way. I really thought to myself, I'm going to be a story that moms tell their children to keep them from going with their stupid friends to do things like this. <laughs> so uh, so um, anyway, so I'm stuck there in the rapid. And eventually, thankfully, um, the rapid just spit me out. Uh, without warning, it just spit me out. I was in there for about a minute. And um, I'll tell you this, that it, it, it wasn't a place of quiet desperation. <laughs> um, it wasn't a dull headache that you sort of convince yourself to kind of will your way through. Um, it was so urgent that I couldn't even make my body do what my mind knew it had to do, which was to swim down. Um, the depths, when the psalmist describes the depths here, the psalmist is describing a place where self-help is of absolutely no use. Does that make sense? Like no amount of motivational speeches are going to help the psalmist get out of this place. It's the place where something has completely entangled you. The place where effort all of a sudden means nothing. And all you can do literally is just cry out for someone else to help you, to rescue you. So what has brought the psalmist to this place? Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, then who could stand? The answer is... Not a loss of a loved one, not hard circumstances, not even his failing health. It is his own sin. <coughs> what the psalmist is confessing here is that he has actually brought himself into the depths. 
He has no one or no thing to blame but himself. The pit that he finds himself in is the pit that he has dug for himself. And the psalmist is telling us something very important about sin in these first four verses. And it's just this. That our sin always leaves us abandoned and helpless. The place that our sin will take us is to a place of abandonment and helplessness, which is ironic. And it's ironic because sin always begins, if you think about it, by promising us the exact opposite. Think about it with me. In the garden, the serpent lures Adam and Eve into believing that disobedience will actually bring them what? Comfort and power, which it doesn't. In the story of the prodigal son, the far country lures the prodigal into believing that that is the place that holds for him luxury and freedom, which it doesn't. You know, I find myself, um, you know, speaking to my children out of anger often because I'm convinced that at that moment it will soothe me and it'll, it'll actually produce better behavior in my children next time, which it doesn't. We hold on to our old resentments with our friends and our parents because we believe that emotional revenge of some sort will end up soothing us in the end, and it doesn't. You see, what the psalmist wants us to know first and foremost here in Psalm 130 is that sin's payoff is always deeply disappointing. Um, it's like a horrific hitchhiking experience. Sin always takes you further than you want to go without ever offering you a ride back. And the psalmist tells us in verse 3 that whether you know it or not, whether you even feel it or not tonight, we have all hitchhiked and we've all been dropped off in the same place. See, verse 3 is a rhetorical question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, then, O Lord, who could stand? And, of course, the answer here is no one. Right? No one is unmarked. One of the most recurring themes in the ministry of Jesus is that we're all marked. We are all marked by iniquity. I, I urge you to read the Gospels sometimes and just sort of find out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. In the Gospels, what you'll find is that Jesus is always trying to convince the religious people that they're just like the prostitutes. And he's always trying to convince the prostitutes that they're no worse off than the religious people. And one of Jesus' most resounding messages throughout his ministry is that what keeps most people out of God's kingdom is the belief that they deserve to be in it in the first place. Everyone is marked. Everyone has to cry out to God from the same place of deep desperation, which leads us, really, to the second half of the psalm, the good part, how grace delivers us. Look at me again at verses 5 through 6. Psalmist says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. And so what is the instruction here? What are we supposed to do? Do you see that? This is weird for us. If we're in a bad place, we want to do something, right? What are we supposed to do here? We're supposed to wait. What in the world does it mean for us to actually wait on the Lord? One of my earliest memories came from getting lost at a production of Sesame Street on Ice. 
uh, downtown Nashville. And my dad had taken me there, and I was convinced, I was maybe five or six, that I was grown up enough to leave the auditorium quickly and meet him at the exit and show him that I could do it myself. And so I ran out of the auditorium as soon as the show was over, and immediately I realized, fairly soon afterwards, I realized that I had taken a wrong turn somewhere, and I was in the wrong place. I'd come to a dead end, and I tried to get back, but at that point I was being swarmed by thousands of people. And so I started frantically running around looking for my dad, looking everywhere for him, until I just gave up. And I sat down and I started crying. And this sweet man, family man, had other kids there, said, let me help you. And what he did to help me was he put me on his shoulders so that I could see above the crowd. And then we just stayed there. We just stayed there and we waited. Until finally, a few minutes later, I saw my dad running around the corner searching the crowd for me. You know, waiting was a good strategy because that man knew something. He knew that my father would come for me. Waiting on the Lord is essentially this. It is stopping and letting God come for you with the understanding that he will not give up until he finds you. Now, here's the remarkable paradox of the gospel, and you see this in the psalm. It's why we call it grace in the first place. We're the ones that lose ourselves. We're the ones that lose ourselves. But God is the one who finds us. The psalmist wants you to know that, you know, Patrick's talked to you about this throughout the week, that sin is wholly our doing, but salvation is wholly the work of the Lord on our behalf. And so what we do is we wait. And I want you to notice here what the basis of our waiting is. Do you see that in verse 5? The basis of our waiting is the Word of God. In other words, the, I think the psalmist would want us to know this, that our waiting is not a naive waiting. It's not a waiting that's based on some pipeless, you know, baseless pipe dream. We're not like one of my college students who is convinced that some six foot two, tan, brown-eyed Prince Charming with no flaws whom she has never met before, is going to descend from the heavens one day on a rainbow and whisk her off her feet. We're actually waiting on a real person. Someone who has actually made promises to us. We are waiting on someone who has shown himself time and time again that he is committed to finding his children. Think about it with me. Do you remember the garden? Of course you remember the garden. Genesis 3. After the fall, after Adam and Eve feast on disobedience, do you remember what the first words are? The first words of the gospel. God says, where are you? And he comes for his children. Do you remember the prodigal? Remember this part of the story that before the prodigal could even begin to apologize for his rebellion, that Jesus tells us that while he was still a long way off, that his father went out to meet him, and then he buries him in his loving arms, and he clothes him once again as his own son. The only way, the only way the father could have known the son was coming is if he was searching the horizon for him in the first place. God delivers us as we wait upon him. And I think this is really, really important for our understanding of the church tonight. The church is not only the community of the once abandoned and helpless. That's what the psalmist says in verses 1 through 4. And that's important for us to recognize. But the church is also the assembly of those who are committed to waiting on the Lord. 
The community of people where the word of the Lord is rehearsed and held out and embraced together. It's the place where found sinners come. Convinced that their sin, though real, will not have the last word when it's confronted by the power of the grace of God. Do you understand what I'm getting at? The church is not a community of gloom. We're not to be a people that just sits around and looks at our belly button and says, Woe is me! Woe is me. It's supposed to be a place of celebration. The church is supposed to be a party. And I wonder, I wonder if you've had enough partying this week. I wonder if you've had enough joy in your life. Look at me at the last stanza in verses 7 through 8. You get this sense as he ends. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. You see the exclamation there. That's a long way from the first verse, right? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's a long way from the lonely gloom and uncertainty of the depths in verse 1. And what I want to highlight for you is the theme, I think, of these last two verses. And that theme is summarized in the line, and you can underline this in your Bible. With him, there is plentiful redemption. Do you know that? You know what plentiful means? It means overflowing. It means abundant. It means full. It means complete. Now this is extremely important because what the psalmist is telling us here is that the gospel is not a story of some halfway salvation. For example, God doesn't get you started like a wind-up toy and then tell you to go and do the rest and finish the work that he started. And the reverse isn't true either. The Lord doesn't expect you to do a little bit on the front end. To convince him that you know what, you're really serious this time. To persuade him to take an interest in you. You know, you've probably heard the saying that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I think that many well-intentioned, church-going people believe that this is the essence of Christianity. That at the end of the day, Jesus saves good people. But nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to read through the gospel sometime. Read through the story of Jesus, and this is what you'll find. That Jesus Christ came down from the heavens, and he threw parties for prostitutes and prodigals. He touched lepers. He actually ate dinner with white-collar criminals, and he offered friendship while he was dying to other dying bandits. And that's the gospel. See, that's what the psalmist means by plentiful redemption. That Jesus doesn't take good people, but he takes people who are bad. He takes people who are broken. He takes people who are stuck in the depths. He takes people like us. And he rejoices. He smiles to give them all of his goodness. Nothing in us, nothing about us contributes at all to our salvation. We don't stand before God at the end of the day on the basis of our reputation and resume. At the end of the day, we stand before God on the basis of the reputation and resume of Jesus Christ. And as he goes, and so go we. I heard a story recently about a, an old baseball player named Satchel Paige. Have you heard of him? Maybe a few of you, it's okay if you haven't. Um, Paige was born a long time ago in Mobile, Alabama in 1906. And he was an extremely gifted uh, baseball pitcher, but he was not allowed to play in the major leagues 
because of the racism, frankly, until 1948. Joe DiMaggio, the, one of the greatest Yankees to ever play baseball, called Page the best and fastest pitcher that I have ever faced. Well, in 1935, Page's professional career began to sort of get lifted off. It started to take off. And people would gather uh, just to see him pitch all the time. And on one particular occasion, he had a bad inning. And so as he came back and walked out the next inning to pitch again, the crowd started booing him. And Frank made him really mad. So Satchel got up there and he took the ball and he struck out the first batter on three straight pitches. Then he motioned for his outfielders. He said, go have a seat in the dugout. And he faced the second batter and he struck him out as well. And he looked at his infielders and said, go have a seat. And they went to the dugout as well and it was only him and his catcher on the field. And it took him three pitches again to strike out the next guy. That's a cool story. <laughs> But it's also a great picture of the gospel. Listen to me. When those players went to the dugout to take their seats, it didn't matter how good they were anymore. You know, one of them could have been the best center fielder the world had ever known. And another could have been a blind man with his hands sewn to his knees. And it wouldn't have mattered. All that mattered in that moment was how good Satchel Paige was. All that mattered was his performance their destiny was completely determined by him. <clears throat> and that's Christianity. That for those who wait upon the Lord, our destinies are completely determined by the steadfast love of God and the plentiful redemption given to us in Jesus Christ. Not how good or bad you are. Not how many quiet times you've had this week at church camp. Not how you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror. And certainly not the social groups that at the end of the day decide whether they're going to accept or reject you. Listen to me, I can imagine that, I mean, I can imagine that you're all very busy people. And I can tell you this, as a college pastor, as a college minister, that your lives will not slow down anytime soon. And this is what happens often, that all of our busyness often leads us to conclude that all that we are all that we are is the sum total of our performances. And so we wear ourselves out with school and work and activities and more activities. And as we do those things, what happens? We feel more validated and we feel more loved and we feel more important. But God doesn't work that way. In Jesus Christ, you are not the sum total of your performances. You are not accepted by your busyness, even if it's your spiritual busyness. The only basis of your acceptance is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, God cannot love you any more tomorrow or the next day than he does right now in this moment. A few, years, a few months ago, excuse me, I was sitting on the couch with our youngest son, Charlie, and our oldest son, John Randall came barreling over the couch to attack me from behind. He's in this sort of wrestling mood now where all he wants to do is wrestle. So, um, so he came to sort of attack me from behind, and I was sitting with Charlie, and so I said, look, don't do that right now because you're going to knock your brother over and it's going to hurt, and yada, yada, yada. Well, a few minutes later, guess what he does? He does it again. Exactly the same thing again. This time he does land on Charlie. And so in my anger in that moment, I pick him up quickly, and I move him off of his brother onto the floor 
where I look him straight in the eye and tell him, I want him to know this, that he's hurt his little brother. And he's disobeyed me. And, uh, excuse me. I can never get through the story. John Randall is, uh, is a handful sometimes, but he's also one of the most sensitive kids that I've ever been around. And sometimes when he's upset, he begins to sort of leak these big tears without making any noises. And it's, um, it's a different kind of crying than normal. Because it's a different kind of pain. It's not the kind of pain that comes from physical injury, like stubbing his toe, or the kind of pain that comes to him when he's being refused something, like he can't watch TV. It's the kind of pain that comes when he's really confused about me. And so he just stands there looking at me, licking these big elephant tears, trying to figure out if what he's just done has somehow changed the way that I feel about it. Let me tell you something. Uh, as a parent, you got parents know this, but that moment for me is a crucial one as a parent. Because I know that I have to end that doubt and confusion as quickly and severely as possible. And so I go to him. I cover him in my arms. And I kiss the top of his head. Because that's what I want him to remember about me. That his daddy is here to cover him in spite of his failure. And so my hugs kind of function as a sacrament in that way. You know, when Adam and Eve fail in the garden, what do they do? You remember what happens? They make coverings for themselves with fig leaves. And as they stand before God on the heels of their disobedience and on the heels of His reprimand, He's just handed down the curses. They're standing there half naked with those silly fig leaves and they must have wondered at that moment how God really felt about them. And to know as a parent that wild look in your child's eyes that betrays their insecurity, I can imagine at that moment that God wanted to end their doubt as severely and quickly as possible as well. And so do you remember what he does? He covers them. He hugs them with the garments of animal skins as a promise that their story will not end on this day. And that his love for them will not break despite the fact that their love for him had broken. You know, you just need to hear this again tonight. And so do I. You've got to rest in this. The Lord takes you in your guilt and in your shame, and he covers you just as you are. He hugs you fully and finally in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and in that moment he assures you that his love for you can never break no matter how you feel at any given moment. And that's enough. That's what the psalmist means by plentiful redemption. And that's why he is so happy, why the psalm begins in the depths, and yet it ends at a party. There ought to be more partying going on this week. You remember what Tom told you last night? What would it feel like if you walked out of here tonight and you knew that your guilt and your shame and your condemnation were all gone? <coughs> that's what Jesus gives to you. And that's how the psalm ends. So listen to the end of the psalm to you. Oh, why excel hope in the Lord? 
For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're kind to us and that you come to us in Jesus and that you hug us in the garments of his righteousness. You clothe us as your children. And that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. Father, I pray that as we hear this and as we think about what it means to apply it, that one of the things that we would see is the psalmist puts his hope in the steadfast word of the Lord and not in how he feels at any given moment. Would you cause us, O Lord, to rely less on our feelings and more on what you have said is true about us in your word? And Father, give us joy. We pray in your name.